the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with John Bonna. He's the co-author of a uh, uh, ebook, the Education Liberty Book. It was published by Liberty University. We'll tell you what they are recommending for believing parents when he joins us later this hour. Well, President Trump visited a Las Vegas hospital and police department today to console and honor the victims. Doctors, first responders, they were all involved in the country's deadliest mass shooting, or at least the aftermath of it, telling them uh, we're there for you as they recover from Sunday's massacre. Words cannot describe the bravery that the whole world witnessed on Sunday night, the president said during a speech at the Las Vegas Police Department. Americans defied death and hatred with love and with courage. Well, he first uh, he told first responders that a grateful nation thanks you. Fifty nine people were killed, more than 500 injured in that attack when a deranged uh, sniper fired from the 32nd floor of a casino. Well, the president's uh, motorcade passed the scene of the shooting on the way to University Medical Hospital or Medical Center, where he met with victims, families, and medical professionals. We met patients. Uh, there were absolutely terribly wounded, the president said, following his hospital visit. The president said his message to the victims is, we have a great country and we're there for you. He said he invited some of the patients to come to the to the White House to visit uh, when they have recovered. And uh, believe me, I'll be there for them, he went on to say. Well, he praised the doctors, the nurses, for their professionalism, telling them it's incredible what you have uh, done. The president also visited the Las Vegas Police Department Command Center to express his appreciation there for the work that first responders had done and are doing. On behalf of our great country, thank you, the president said. It could uh, have been a whole lot worse. Well, the president was accompanied by First Lady Melania Trump, arrived at uh, McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas shortly after noon local time. The president was greeted at the airport by Nevada Republican Governor Brian Sandoval, Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman, and Clark County Sheriff Joseph Lombardo. Uh, Las Vegas is a city the president knows quite well. Trump International Hotel Las Vegas is only a few miles down the road from Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino, where police say the man named Stephen Paddock smashed two windows in his suite overlooking a country music festival on Sunday night and opened gunfire on concert goers. In recent days, Democrats have called for new gun control measures in the wake of the massacre. Both Trump and congressional Republicans have said it's too early to discuss any legislative action that could be taken waiting until the investigation is complete. A reporter asked Trump the issue of gun violence during his hospital visit, but the president said, we're not here to talk that today. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said uh, yesterday, it's too soon to discuss policy changes when authorities uh, are still gathering all the facts of the shooting. There's a time and a place for a political debate, but now is not the time. It's the time, rather, to unite the country. There is currently an open and ongoing law enforcement investigation. A motive is yet to be determined. 
Well, soon after her boyfriend carried out the deadliest shooting in modern United States history, Mary Lou Danley, who did not appear to be in a panic, reportedly telling a family member she had a clean conscience. I called her up immediately and she said, relax. Uh, we shouldn't worry about it. I'll fix it. Do not panic. I have a clean conscience. That's a quote from Danley's brother uh, speaking to ABC News in Manila on Wednesday. Well, Bustos said he called uh, his sister after he heard about um, the massacre on Sunday night, which left 59 people dead and more than 530 injured. The 62-year-old Filipino-born woman returned to the United States at the Los Angeles International Airport late on Tuesday, met by federal authorities who questioned her for about six and a half hours today. Danley told immigration officials in Los Angeles that she was stressed, but gave her word to Los Angeles, or rather Las Vegas police, that she would return to the U.S. and is keeping her promise. She also claims she wants to know what happened. A Philippines immigration official says that Danley re-entered the United States on an Australian passport she acquired during her marriage uh, to another individual, which ended after he died in the late 1990s. It wasn't immediately clear what uh, her status is in the United States, but Attorney Maria Antone uh, spokesperson for the Bureau of Immigration and Deportation of the Philippines said she's considered to be a former Filipino or natural born Filipino who is eligible for dual citizenship, whether or not she has that. Well, the New York Times reporting on the grilling, the six and a half hour grilling, uh, says that in her first public statement since the uh, massacre, the gunman's girlfriend said uh, that he had sent her on a trip to the Philippines, wired her money there, but that she did not know he was planning to harm anyone. I knew Stephen Paddock as a kind, caring, quiet man, she said. I loved him and hoped for a quiet future together with him. Mary Lou Danley said, referring to the gunman, in a statement read by her lawyer, Matthew Lombard. It uh, never occurred to me in any way whatsoever that he was planning violence against anyone. Well, the statement which came after she uh, went to Los Angeles, uh, uh, offices of the FBI, questioning, according to a law enforcement official, was released as the authorities sought her insight into what prompted a man with no evident uh, criminal history to become a mass murderer. Well, Ms. Danley said that she was grateful to Mr. Paddock for the trip to the Philippines, her native country, to visit family. But when uh, he wired her money, which he said was for me to buy a house for me and my family, she feared that it uh, it uh, was his way of breaking up with her. She stressed that she returned to the United States voluntarily because she knew the FBI and the Las Vegas Police Department wanted to talk with her and she wanted to talk with them. Well, the Bureau is trying to reconstruct the actions of the gunman, including finding and interviewing everyone, anyone who crossed his path in recent weeks. Andrew McCabe, the deputy director of the FBI, said in a cybersecurity conference in Boston, the killer is an individual who was not on our radar or anyone's radar prior to the event. He said in an interview with CNBC outside the conference, so we really have a challenging bit of detective work to do here to uh, kind of put the pieces back together after the fact. Well, the police on Tuesday revised the number of victims killed on Sunday to 58. All but three of the people have been identified. These are some of... um, of those who were injured. President Trump was visiting Las Vegas today. He offered words of support for the victims. The message that um, uh, that he had was that we are a part of a great country and that we are uh, with you. Again, the New York Times reporting on the encounter that lasted some six and a half hours with the girlfriend of the gunman of uh, Sunday night's Las Vegas shooting. Meanwhile, the sheriff in Las Vegas has asked the question, what if uh, the Las Vegas shooter uh, had been radicalized, uh, that ISIS on two occasions had 
taken responsibility for, at least credit from their vantage point for the the events that took place. And of course, there are efforts to try to determine what motivated this individual to take such uh, drastic and heinous action against uh, strangers, essentially a very well-planned-out, premeditated event that resulted in the deaths of dozens of Americans. And that is, uh, despite the fact that early on when ISIS took responsibility, that continues to be a part of the investigation that's moving forward. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. Uh, later this hour, we're going to talk with John Bonna. He's the co-author of the Education Liberty book, in which they make the case uh, that parents who share a biblical worldview, that there are certain principles that must be considered. We'll talk with him about that later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and President Trump teamed up today to blast an NBC News report detailing a supposed rift between them with the top diplomat adamantly denying that he considered resigning and the president calling on the network to apologize. The uh, NBC News story had just been uh, uh, totally refuted by Secretary Tillerson and Vice President Pence tweeted the president. Well, the report also said Tillerson even called Trump a moron this summer after a meeting at the Pentagon with members of Trump's national security team and cabinet officials. Vice President Pence uh, reportedly got involved at that time to discuss ways to ease the tensions. Well, Tillerson said today that he would not address petty stuff, but said of the president, he loves this country. He puts America and Americans first. He's smart, end quote. Will Trump en route to Las Vegas to meet with survivors of the mass shooting on Sunday also hit back uh, at the report saying that NBC News is fake and more dishonest than even CNN. They are a disgrace to good reporting. No wonder their news ratings are way down again on his way to uh, Las Vegas. In his remarks, Tillerson denied that Pence ever uh, had to get involved to convince him to stay. My commitment to the success of our president and our country is as strong as it was the day I accepted his offer to serve as secretary of state. There is much to be done, and we're just getting started, Tillerson said. The vice president has never had to persuade me to remain as secretary of state because I have never considered leaving the post. Well, a source with knowledge... Of the situation, told Fox News that the conversation between Pence and Tillerson were more focused on getting the secretary of state back on the same page as the president, characterizing their interactions more as counseling. The source told Fox News that Pence and Trump are fully in lockstep and that the vice president continuously discusses the expectations of the president with cabinet officials to ensure the administration is moving forward in the same direction. So it was an unusual thing to hear the secretary of state take to the mic to refute um, the allegation. Leaders in the House and Senate and the White House have all agreed on a tax outline. That means a true update to the broken tax system could be imminent. Whether or not you agree with it, the Republicans seem to have come up with something that at least at this point, we're being told uh, they agree on. First, the GOP tax plan framed would uh, framework rather would lower taxes for individual Americans. It would double the standard deduction for individuals and thereby expand the zero percent bracket. And it would create three income tax brackets down from seven, 12, 25, 35 percent, respectively. Most simply, this will allow all Americans to keep more of their hard-earned money in their pockets. That's the, uh, uh, that's the advantage that they are claiming. Importantly, the plan goes a long way toward fixing our business tax system, which makes it hard for U.S. businesses to invest, uh, invest in new equipment and new factories. Slow investment caused by our high and uh, distortionary taxes has limited American job creation and slowed wage growth. 
Now, this isn't um, uh, a, a, tr- a truth that only economists are aware of. Almost 80 percent of Americans understand that high corporate taxes lead to lower wages and encourage corporations to do business outside the United States. Well, the proposed new 20 percent corporate tax rate would mean a raise for hardworking Americans to maximize its benefits. Tax reform has to include permanent full expensing. This would allow companies to write off the cost of investments. Uh, the investments they make in their own workforce, or workplace rather, immediately, such as the cost of office space needed to hire additional workers. Right now, the proposal grants five years of expensing, but uh, that can easily be expanded at little uh, additional cost. Uh, this simple change, if made permanent, could grow the economy by more than 5% over 10 years. And we've seen under the previous administration, 1% to 2%, currently 3.1%. Five percent is uh, hard to remember what that might look and feel like without full expensing the the, uh, current system will continue to keep the cost of investing artificially high, discouraging business expansion. The uh, important takeaway is that they apparently have come to an agreement uh, moving forward with the uh, tax reform package. Meanwhile, Canadian officials confirmed that a diplomat, a diplomat in Havana suffered from unusual symptoms just one day after the U.S. said its diplomats in Cuba were targeted by an acoustic attack. In a statement, a spokesperson for Global Affairs Canada said the country is aware of unusual symptoms affecting Canadian and U.S. diplomatic personnel and their families in Havana. Well, unlike U.S. officials who said their embassy employees suffered a variety of physical symptoms since late 2016, Canadian authorities did not say when their personnel in Cuba fell ill. At least five employees of the U.S. Embassy in Havana were subjected to an acoustic attack using sonic devices, U.S. State Department officials have said. Two of them were sent back to the United States for treatment. The sophisticated device that operated outside the range of audible sound was deployed either inside or outside the residences of U.S. diplomats living in Havana, according to uh, three U.S. officials. The U.S. Embassy employees suffered symptoms resembling concussion and have uh, since then traveled to the United States for treatment. They could have suffered permanent hearing loss as a result, one official says. And while the harm caused by most acoustic weapons is minimal, some experts say they're not aware of what kind of sound uh, may have caused these symptoms. Canada and the United States are actively working together with Cuba to ascertain the cause of these unusual symptoms, according to Canadian officials. Today, a U.S. uh, government official said the FBI agents will be allowed onto the island with Cuba's uh, cooperation to investigate these incidents and we'll continue to follow the story as it uh, develops want to give you a quick heads up that tomorrow is bring your bible to school day so what's that all about well it is a a focus on the family sponsored event and on bring your bible to school day this year's event being thursday october 5th students across the nation will celebrate religious freedom and share god's love with their friends it's an annual event for students it's sponsored as i mentioned by focus on the family the event is designed to empower students uh, to express their beliefs in the truth of god's word to do so in a respectful way that demonstrates the love of christ participation is voluntary it's student directed meaning it's completely up to students christian club and youth groups to sign up and then lead the activities in their schools. So uh, you may mark your calendar. Some of you may already be involved, but that's coming up tomorrow. You may see something a little bit different um, than you're used to seeing uh, at schools. Uh, Again, uh, Focus on the Family is the sponsor of this nationwide event. 
Uh, And they're saying that as a Christian student, you can be powerful voice of hope at your school. In the Bible, it's often young people who led the way for the rest of the culture by providing an example of spiritual boldness, taking a courageous stand for their belief in God. And we see this in the books of Daniel and Esther. Uh, which tell the stories of a young man and young woman, both uh, who, despite their youth, had the courage to share God's truth and love with an unbelieving culture. The New Testament also speaks to the difference uh, you can make. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, um, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. 1 Timothy 4.12. Also, simply by bringing your Bible to school and expressing your faith, you're helping to protect religious freedoms for other students and they offer a pamphlet on their website, uh, Five Reasons to Get Involved. And again, you can find out more at bringyourbible.org. And there's all kinds of uh, resources and information about the event, but that's coming up tomorrow. And um, keep these young people in prayer, as some of them may face some opposition uh, for choosing to bring their Bible with them to school, which, of course, is a legal activity uh, under every circumstance. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, though, we're going to talk with John Bonna. He is the co-author of the Education Liberty book. It's published by Liberty University. And we'll find out what they say is the theological framework within which parents can determine the course of their children's education. So John Bonna will join us. Later in the program, we're going to talk about the two-day hearing with the Equifax ex-CEO, by the way, he stepped down after the hacking took place, but company executives say they weren't aware of the significance of the data breach initially, but they certainly did profit before it was made public. We'll talk about some of those hearings. Also, whether or not the Social Security number will continue to Uh, be a mainstay for people to identify themselves uh, for the government and for other reasons. We'll talk a little bit about what's being considered uh, in that area as well. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. John Bonna, my next guest, co-author of the Education Liberty book. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is the co-author of a, uh, a book titled The Education Liberty Book, Why, should you, why, should, um, why We Should Save Our Children from Lousy Government Schools. Uh, John Bonna, along with his uh, co-author, uh, are the uh, authors of the book, and it's uh, published by Story of Liberty Press. He joins us. Uh, to talk about it and why and what uh, things parents should consider in determining the course of their children's education. John Bonner, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Georgina. How are you? I'm doing well. Good to your voice again. Thank you. First of all, tell me about the Education Liberty book. Why did you write it, and what is this, the message that you want to convey? Well, I did a film actually years ago with Kurt Cameron uh, called Monumental, and it showed the... Uh, uh, basically, the story of our pilgrims and how important education uh, was to them and their families. In fact, most people don't realize they actually left Holland. Of course, they were under duress and all that, but they left because the children were really being infected uh, by bad education there. And so that's one of the primary reasons they came to the country. And as we learned that, um, uh, you know, we studied it further and learned there was actually a biblical, uh, uh, the Bible had a plan for education. And so we wrote that along with the Liberty Book, uh, the Christian Vote Book, and the Economic Liberty Book. And uh, now we're uh, writing the law book. So we're, 
we're kind of following the whole monument, the Forefathers Monument in Plymouth, Mass., that has all those symbols on it of morality, law, education, and liberty. Now, for the education book, it may be surprising to uh, to some of our listeners uh, that you write about the theology of education, that the Bible actually has something to say very specific about the responsibilities that parents have in educating their children. And there's a lot of controversy, as you know, over whether or not public education is the right place, if private Christian education, if homeschooling is the right solution. But you begin with what the scriptures have to say. Is that surprising to many of your readers to learn that there's uh, so much said about this area of a parent's responsibility? Well, you said it, Georgina. You're right. Amen. I mean, God really gives parents the primary responsibility for teaching their children. You know, as we watch the uh, collapse of our culture, uh, we remember that God actually connects our obedience to him and our very survival. So, even though we've deteriorated quite a bit morally and financially, uh, we, the parents that I talk to, they're wondering if our culture is going to survive at all. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised at what's happening in the world today. You know, like I had a friend tell me once, you know, never be surprised what the unsaved will do. But we def- really desperately need to, to train a generation of children who understand these times and know what to do. Uh, and frankly, those children will will have an understanding that will only come from a Christian education. You can't learn it any other way. And look, I know there's a lot of good kids, and I know some good teachers in public schools. They're they're nice people, but frankly, they're muzzled. You know, they can't talk about Christ or the Bible or the Christian faith. And I I'm one of these Christians really that believes that Christian society really depends on parents becoming obedient and how we educate our children. And that's why we wrote the book. And, and there is a biblical plan for education. And like you said, some parents, most people, I'd say our brethren, our, our friends, they have no idea that Scripture lays out a clear plan uh, for the education of our, our children. And um, it, it comes right, if I'd say to any of your listeners, read the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy if you want to start. That's a good place to start. Read that chapter. Um, if, if you believe in the Bible like I do, you know, these ancient words uh, still apply today. Uh, God's Word applies universally, and uh, He gives us a special reminder uh, to obey these principles that will teach our children diligently. Uh, when they, you, know, you sit down and you walk, basically you're saying all the time, teach them. So it's important that we realize God's Word is uh, for all time. Now, what's the, from the biblical uh, perspective, what's the primary goal of education? In this country, there's compulsory education where children are required to be trained in certain areas. From a biblical point of view, what's the primary purpose of education? Well, we understand that God's, again, if you just take God's law for, uh, God's laws, uh, for example, learning God's law, being educated on what God's law is. If we don't know what God's laws are, people will be confounded. They'll break them. They won't know. Uh, now, there is some good in all of us, and there's that monitor. But nevertheless, if we don't teach these principles to our children, how will they know? Uh, scripture says it will bind them as a sign around your hand and around you know, your, the frontal of your forehead. I mean, he's literally saying, put it on your doorpost. Don't forget these things. These are really important. So I think, I think basically the idea that we have to remember is that in all candor, 
Uh, the public government school system has removed God completely from the classroom. And the central lesson taught in government schools, and I don't mean to be mean or anything, but it's true, is just a, they're teaching the irrelevancy of God in all things. So that's the primary thing we have to know, that you can't take God out of the equation and expect kids to have a good education. They won't. And uh, frankly, that's what's happened today. The central lesson taught in government schools is the irrelevancy of God in all things. And it's failing big time, as we see now. Now, you mentioned a good place to start is Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter. What does uh, Deuteronomy, uh, this is, of course, um, the God of Israel um, and, and Moses writing. What does the scripture say about education in Deuteronomy? Well, he's talking, it's actually chapter six, and he's, he's saying these words I'm commanding you. I don't have the verse in front of me. But he basically got us saying, teach these things to your children diligently, to your sons. Talk to them uh, when you're in your house, uh, when you, you're walking with them, uh, when you lie down, when you rise up. So God is saying, teach these things, my principles, my laws, uh, my statutes to your children all the time. And, and this idea means that there's really no room for you know, laziness or poor planning. Uh, but uh, or failing to instruct our children in God's perfect law of liberty, the Bible uses. Um, and so Moses does not describe, you know, uh, some kind of project, more or less, that you see in public schools. I mean, he's basically telling parents, and, and the New Testament as well follows this suit. Uh, teachers in the Old Testament were, of course, the the family of, of the sons of Aaron, uh, and, of course, we see that in the New Testament, it's continued. And Paul talked about it. Uh, he instructed fathers, do not provoke your children, you know, in anger, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul was basically following in the book of Ephesians what was already told by Moses in Deuteronomy 6 uh, to teach them diligently all the time. So it was continued throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, that parents have the primary responsibility for teaching their children. And Paul, frankly, is simply reminding parents of their uh, uh, biblical and historical duties that started thousands of years ago. So in the 21st century, what does that look like? I would imagine some parents uh, send their children to a, a public education that is entirely secular and the remainder of their time, they focus on a biblical worldview. What should it look like in the 21st century from your perspective? Well, frankly, you know, the, the humanism, humanists have, have really worked very hard. And, you know, the government school system, not many people realize, it really uh, got a lot of support uh, back in 1979 under Jimmy Carter when he created the Department of Education. It wasn't that long ago, 38 years ago. But for this uh, action, human, humanists were able to cement uh, in a long struggle to set the federal government over American education. And with this department in, in place, frankly, humanists have gained uh, financial and philosophical control uh, over uh, American uh, public education. And so 
That is the reality of it. You can't teach the Bible. You can't pray. I guess tomorrow is, tomorrow is actually bring your Bible to school. Yes. Day. You know, at least that's good. But, think, Georgina, think how far we've fallen that we have to have a day to bring your Bible to school. Yeah, and that's we, controversial. Yeah. Yeah, we used to, we used to, the Bible was school. Think about it. The Bible was school when this all started. You learned your ABCs, A for Ed and B for Babylon. You learned all that. But that's how far we've fallen. And, um, you know, frankly, uh, it's mind-boggling when you really look at what's happening. It's, it's, you know, just watching this over a period of years. Uh, And so once they forbid prayer in schools, uh, forbid Bible reading in the classroom, Boy, it, it, you're taking God out, and, and that's not good. It doesn't have a good ending. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with John Bonna, co-author of the Education Liberty book. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing a conversation with John Bonna. He's the co-author of the Education Liberty book published by uh, Liberty. Thank you so much for uh, for hanging with us. Now, for parents who want to take the uh, the biblical um, mandate to educate their children seriously, what's the best place to start? And what does that mean in terms of your relationship with public education, public secular education? Well, I think the best place, you know, parents can start is teach their children. That's right. That's what Scripture uh, uh, tells us to do. And and realizing, and again, not to be mean to anybody or or a blanket condemnation on all teachers. Of course not. But the main reason is the government school system removes God completely from the classroom. And and that's what that's the important thing that we have to realize, and, and we can't forget that and just put that under the rug like it doesn't exist. And and frankly, that's the central lesson taught in government schools is is really that God is irrelevant, and it hurts me to say that, but it's it's true. Uh, the public school system is a powerful tool against the very souls of of our children, and. Uh, you know, if, if you're placing your child in a public school, I mean, frankly, it's like playing Russian roulette with their soul because they're ne- they're being indoctrinated into an atheistic education at 98% of these public schools. It's just the way it is. And, you know, this this um, uh, failing vision uh, of, of the public school system uh, is so obvious. It, it, you know, it, it's not working. Uh, mass education is not working in America, and we have to remember that God gives parents the primary responsibility for teaching their children. So that's what we have to remember. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember, Georgina, the federal government, they had a, a uh, their eight original national goals for education back, oh, it was back just before 2000. It was called Goal to, Goals 2000, mm-hmm. and they sat these standards are it almost like this messianic state, like godlike statements that all the students will be ready for school by 2000. There will be, the students will be first in the world in math and science. Uh, uh, by 2000, every student will possess the knowledge and the skills uh, to complete, compete in a global uh, economy. Um, the schools will be, this one it will really ring your ear, the schools will be free of drugs, violence, and, uh, and the unauthorized presence of firearms and alcohol. 
oh my gosh, look look what's happened. I mean, we've replaced the Bible. We've taken out the Bible. We've got metal detectors now in these schools. And so, and again, not to beat up, but just to be honest about, honest about this, uh, how bad the, the government education uh, system has become. And uh, again, not to, to be so redundant, but it's important to say that the central lesson taught in government schools is the irrelevancy of God in all things. You have to know that going in. I mean, I made the mistake as a parent. Uh, I had my kids in a, in a government school, uh, mass education uh, school years ago, but I, I basically learned the hard way. Um, this whole idea of socializing, you know, that, well, your kids won't. I had friends telling me that. Uh, your kids won't socialize. You know, they, 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 they won't be uh, out in the society and they won't socialize right. Well, my wife and I were kind of tricked into that. We put them in a public school. Well, it all went bad, Georgina. I mean, it was a bad experience. Uh, my eldest boy literally had fist fights every day after school. He didn't learn how to read. And the thing that really thing that offended me, you know, even worse than that, is my daughter uh, was uh, going to sing a Christmas carol uh, during a Christmas school play. And instead, her teacher pressed her against her wishes to sing an, a song for another religion. And she got so upset. I can't even tell you how upset my little daughter got. Mm. And it was after that stay, I'll tell you, that stay at that local government school, that was it. That was the end. And we put our kids in a Christian school, and I have to tell you, a completely different change in them. They were happy. They were excited to go to school. They had new friends. Uh, my son learned how to read. There were no more fish fights. And um, so the biggest thing, our, our kids were no longer indoctrinated with a with a atheistic uh, education. It was a wake-up call for our family. And so I'm, I'm just telling your listeners from my experience, you know, geez, if you could somehow avoid government school, the, the public school system, with family, homeschool, a Christian school at the church, do it. That That should be your priority in life if you're a parent, in my opinion. So this really is a call to parents to consider the theological charge um, to raise their children. And my parents used to say in the fear and admonition of the Lord and not to expect that uh, the the secularization of um, much of public education won't have an impact on them uh, because it renders uh, God irrelevant in the process of learning. Yeah, I mean, I think when we explain the biblical basis for education that we were talking about earlier, people often hear something different from what we're saying. I mean, I, again, we're we're calling for the you know, obedience to what God says, but it's not a blanket condemnation of all teachers, uh, or uh, but it's a it is a theological discussion uh, with roots in reality uh, and God's uh, uh, primary revelation right in Scripture. And understanding about education, as I said, it's found right in the, read the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy tonight. It's, it's not that long. It'll take you five minutes. Once you read that, you'll understand God's plan for educating your children. It's right there. It's real clear. Uh, and, um, of course, you'll, if you'd like to read further, those great ancient words that are applicable for every time, including our time today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the book is titled The Education Liberty Book, um, published by Liberty University. Now, this is part of a series. You mentioned that there are others that preceded and one that will follow. 
Can you tell us about them once again? Yes, and thank you. I forgot to mention, Thank. I wanted to thank Liberty University for sponsoring our book. They loved it. Jerry Falwell uh, Jr. Uh, made the decision to do that. So we're very thankful for Liberty sponsoring the book. And, um, yeah, we did We did uh, write the uh, Liberty book. That That is the original one, the Liberty book, a couple years ago. And then we did the Christian Vote book. Uh, the third book was the Economic Liberty book. Uh, this book right now that we're just currently releasing, the Education book. And before Christmas, we'll release the uh, fifth book, the Law book, Law and Liberty book. So, Where can our listeners find uh, copies of uh, any one of these in the series? Uh, right at the uh, story of Liberty Press dot com, and uh, we we plan on packaging them all together for a Christmas gift. So you'll be able to buy all five books uh, in one shot, and uh, it's it's great for a family uh, just to have this and, and read this. What God's Word says about liberty and freedom. And again, the story of Liberty Press is where you can find out more. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Georgina. God bless you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Again, John Bonna, the co-author of the Education Liberty book. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, tomorrow, as was mentioned by my previous guest, is Bring Your Bible to School Day. It's an annual event uh, sponsored by Focus on the Family. They launched this initiative as a way to empower modern-day Esthers and Daniels, both young people as we read their stories in Scripture, to be courageous in standing for their faith. Carrying your Bible to school can be a big deal these days, and young people are encouraged to do that. There are resources to help them along the way to equip them to build their confidence and their ability to openly express their deeply held biblical faith in the public square. And you can find that at bringyourbible.org. It's a religious freedom event for students. It's sponsored by Focus on the Family. Tomorrow is the day most uh, students participate uh, on the 5th of October. But if students have a conflict, they can organize the event on alternative days close to the uh, nationwide event. Students from kindergarten all the way up to college level can participate. Elementary and teen versions of a guide to help with that are available for download. Students nationwide uh, lead the the effort to their respective schools, or rather at their respective schools. It's voluntary, it's student-led, uh, meaning it's up to students, including those uh, in Christian clubs, youth groups, and so on, to participate by leading Bring Your Bible to School Day activities at their own schools. And it's uh, designed, as I mentioned, to equip and inspire young people to be a voice of hope, understanding their religious freedom, and to express their uh, biblical beliefs in a loving, Christ-centered way. There's advice on how to deal with any conflict that might come up if uh, for students. And again, you can find that at bringyourbible.org. I mention it too, to encourage uh, parents or adults for that matter, to pray for young people who are taking a bold stand for many of them to carry their Bible to school, something they don't do often and uh, not knowing what uh, response they may get. So let's just pray that they'll have a great day and an opportunity to share their faith in a way um, that is Christ honoring and uh, helps to encourage and edify them and other uh, believing students on their campuses. We mentioned in the first hour, and I wanted to mention again for those of you who join us later, that the girlfriend of the Los Angeles, or rather Las Vegas gunman, 
uh, said today that it never occurred to her in any way whatsoever that he was planning the massacre, the people that he killed and injured um, uh, during the country music concert on the Strip. As you may know, there was great anticipation for her return to the United States. She had been in the Philippines visiting family. He had wired uh, several thousand dollars to her while she was there. But she is saying in the six and a half hour interview that she had with the FBI that she knew Stephen Paddock as a kind, caring, quiet man. Uh, In a statement read by her attorney outside the FBI headquarters in Los Angeles, he went on to say that she says, I loved him and hoped for a quiet future together with him. He never said anything to me or took any action that I was aware of that I understood in any way to be a warning that something horrible like this was going to happen in quote. Now, uh, she um, uh, said that. Um, She rather was questioned by federal agents uh, for much of today after returning from her native Philippines, where she had been for more than two weeks. In the statement, uh, she said uh, her former boyfriend told her that he had found a cheap ticket for her to the Philippines and that he wanted her to take the trip home to see her family. While she was there, he wired money for her to buy a house for herself and her family. I was grateful, but honestly, I was worried that uh, first the unexpected trip home and then the money was a way of breaking up with me. So that's what happened how she interpreted that um, uh, bank deposit. Uh, he had apparently wired $100,000 to the Philippines days before the shooting, according to U.S. officials. Investigators are trying to trace that money. He never said anything to me or took any action that I was aware of that I understood in any way to be harming that uh, something horrible like this was going to happen, she said. Well, she is a 62-year-old. She's been called a person of interest by investigators. She was met by federal agents when she arrived in Los Angeles International Airport the Tuesday evening. Investigators are struggling to get inside the mind of the shooter, a frustratingly opaque figure who carried out his high-rise massacre without leaving a, 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 the a plain sight clues often found after major acts uh, such as this. So that investigation continues and that uh, assuming that uh, what, uh, what's what been released to the public uh, reflects what was said in the private meeting with the FBI, it may or may not be very helpful in their efforts to understand the motivation. Well, in other news, former Equifax uh, Inc. Uh, Chief Richard Smith repeatedly told legislators yesterday that he, uh, he and other executives weren't aware of the significance of the company's data breach until weeks after it was detected in late July. Those assertions failed to mollify members of Congress who slammed him and Equifax for allowing the hack to happen in the first place, failing to immediately realize its significance and the handling of the problem after disclosing it publicly. Well, lawmakers also raised questions about the current structure of credit reporting companies. And of course, we don't have the option of opting out of their having our information, whether they need more regulation and the amount of consumer information they, that they gather. Mr. Smith testifying before a subcommittee of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce said the company initially knew there was an incident involving suspicious activity, but not that millions of Americans' personal information had been compromised. Now, one might assume that an organization like Equifax would take any breach, whether it was considered small or great, very seriously, given the nature of the information they have on consumers all across the fruited plain. It is unconscionable that Equifax, Representative Ben Ray Lujan, A Democrat out of New Mexico said, failed so spectacularly to protect people's most sensitive personal data. He questioned what the company was doing to prevent another attack and how it would compensate affected consumers. And by the way, this is in the uh, uh, just days away from a contract being signed uh, on with uh, Equifax and the IRS uh, that they would uh, have a a greater role of um, 
protecting information of uh, U.S. citizens as well. So it's a, the timing is uh, rather significant. Well, the grilling of Mr. Smith, who stepped aside last week as the company's chairman and chief executive, kicked off a series of congressional hearings this week. They're set to examine the company's hack. Well, under questioning by committee members, Mr. Smith, and this is yesterday, provided more details about how the stage was set for the breach, which has affected potentially 145.5 million Americans, about half of us, after the company received a public notice of a security vulnerability, an employee failed to notify other staff to patch the software issue. Mr. Smith said he didn't name that employee. He did tell lawmakers the error was compounded by a scanning system that failed to pick up the vulnerability. Subsequent investigations found this uh, vulnerability allowed hackers to enter Equifax's systems. Uh, It's like the guards at Fort Knox forgot to lock the door and failed to notice the thieves were emptying the vaults. Representative Walden, uh, the chairman of the Full Energy and Commerce Committee, said he called Equifax's response to consumers ham-handed. Mr. Smith said the reason the scanning system failed to pick up on the vulnerability is still under investigation. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence in Equifax or other uh, organizations that uh, collect and keep our information. The former CEO faced questions about when he was notified of the breach and what exactly he knew about it. Equifax said its security team noticed suspicious activity July the 29th. Mr. Smith said he was informed two days later on the 31st by his then chief information officer. He said a suspicious movement of data had occurred in a dispute portal, uh, which is where consumers go to contest information on their credit reports. Lawmakers pressed him on what the company's chief legal officer, John Kelly, knew regarding the incident by the end of July. Mr. Smith said Kelly was also informed on the 31st of suspicious activity. Well, lawmakers also asked about three senior executives who sold shares on August the 1st and 2nd. Mr. Smith confirmed that Mr. Kelly would have been required to sign off on such sales. Earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Equifax's board is reviewing Mr. Kelly's actions in regard to the share sales. Representative Representative Tony Cardenas, a Democrat out of California, said he would like to request a hearing with Mr. Kelly. The company has said uh, those three executives who sold shares weren't aware of the breach at the time, but the timing is rather suspicious. Mr. Smith said all three executives are honorable men, men of integrity, and that they followed proper procedures in selling the shares. All three are still at Equifax. Equifax. Well, the uh, hackers haven't been identified, and Mr. Smith wouldn't say whether he thought the cyber attack was state-sponsored. He said only that the company has engaged the FBI. He said Equifax has spent $250 million over the past three years on beefing up its data security from when it became when he became CEO in 2005, when the company had virtually no focus on cybersecurity. Equifax now has a team of 225 professionals around the world, Mr. Smith said. They, of course, were in place when the hack took place. Well, lawmakers were broadly critical of the credit reporting industry, which is headed by three major companies, Equifax, Experion PLC, and TransUnion. The industry is underregulated and collects detailed information on Americans who don't have a choice in the matter, uh, says another representative. We can't trust credit reporting companies to self-regulate, she said. Equifax has offered free services to help protect consumers from identity theft. Representative Lujan jousted with Mr. Smith over what the company could do to compensate consumers who might be harmed because of the Equifax breach. For example, Mr. Lujan asked if Equifax would compensate consumers whose identities were stolen. That was yesterday's hearing. It continued today. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I mentioned the Equifax hack. It exposed the personal data of some 145.5 million Americans, including people's Social Security numbers and their dates of birth. Well, the administration of President Donald Trump is exploring ways to replace the Social Security number with a safer system based on modern technology in the wake of that uh, hack. The White House cybersecurity czar said uh, yesterday, Rob Joyce, the White House's coordinator, said one possibility is using uh, cryptographic keys or a combination of long random numbers to unlock personal data. The merit of that kind of system of numbers is that they could uh, be revoked once they are found to be compromised. I feel very strongly, he said, that the Social Security number has outlived its usefulness. I don't know what I would do. I've memorized mine. It, it's, I've used it so many times. Another random series of numbers. Well, Mr. Joyce said at a cybersecurity conference hosted by the Washington Post, it's a flawed system, or at least outdated. If you think about it, every time we use the Social Security number, we put it at risk. He described the current system as untenable, noting that his own Social Security number has been compromised at least four times. We've got a modern digital age. Uh, we've got to find a way to use that modern cryptographic identifier to help us drive down that risk. He said, adding that um, he has asked various departments and federal agencies to submit ideas. He didn't provide a schedule for further policy steps, but he said, I feel very strongly that the Social Security number has outlived its usefulness. When the White House officials spoke uh, yesterday morning, just as members of Congress grilled the former Equifax chief executive, Richard Smith, at the House panel hearing, asking questions about how the data breach occurred. Um, that hack uh, exposed about half of uh, the personal data of about half of uh, Americans with uh, Social Security numbers and dates of birth were also also made available. Um, uh, and the question is, um, will the Social Security number at some point in the not too distant future be obsolete? And the answer appears to be, yeah, most likely. Well, the start of a new Supreme Court term is a good moment to note some Underreported news, President Trump is rapidly remaking the federal appellate and district courts with highly qualified nominees who fulfill his campaign promise to pick constitutional conservatives. The White House announced its eighth batch of judicial nominees uh, on Thursday last, including four excellent choices for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. They include a pair of Texans, Don Willett, who is now on the Texas Supreme Court and is well known for his witty Twitter um, feed, and James Ho, a Gibson Dunn partner in Dallas who clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas and was Texas Solicitor General. The other two Fifth Circuit nominees have notable legal achievements to their credit. Stuart Duncan was Solicitor General of Louisiana and General Counsel for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. He was counsel of record in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby stores, the landmark 2014 decision allowing closely held companies to be exempt from regulatory regulations, rather, they object to on religious grounds. Kurt Engelhardt, a chief judge for the Federal District Court for Eastern Louisiana. In 2013, he wrote a withering 129-page opinion documenting misconduct by the Justice Department Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney for Prosecuting New Orleans Police. Prosecutors attempted to inflame the potential jury pool against the officers with prejudicial public comments, including the use of a fake name on the website of the Times-Picayune. Justice uh, appealed, but Judge Engelhardt was upheld by the Fifth Circuit. He will join if he's confirmed. The speed of the nomination, uh, the nominations rather, and the quality of the nominees is the result of the close ties between the White House Judicial Vetters and the Federalist Society. That's a national clearinghouse for conservative legal talent. Judicial nominations are arguably the most successful part of the Trump presidency. Uh, we can, we may um, 
have missed some, but uh, Mr. Trump has made 18 nominations to appellate courts, 39 to district courts, three to the U.S. Court of uh, Federal Claims. The Senate has confirmed only four for the appellate courts as the Democrats use every possible delay tactic. They've even uh, tried to disqualify Amy Coney Barrett, a nominee for the Seventh Circuit, because she's an Orthodox Catholic, as Senator Dick Durbin put it in a question at the Senate hearing. Of course, it's unconstitutional to take that into account, but that's another matter. Uh, With the confirmation politics increasingly polarizing, Mr. Trump and Republicans will uh, are moving quickly to make it take advantage rather of this moment of Senate and White House control. If Democrats take the Senate in 2018, and that's a real possibility, Chuck Schumer will try to block the confirmation of any conservative nominee Mr. Trump uh, uh, puts forward. And um, so the process will continue and we'll see uh, who is pulling the strings uh, to determine who's in and who's out. Hey, by the way, portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. Well, the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act would ban abortions at 20 weeks. It passed the House on a vote of 237 to 189, with two Republicans voting no. Representatives Rodney Freelingheisen of New Jersey and Representative uh, Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania and three Democrats voting yes. Representatives Henry Sellier of uh, Texas, Daniel Lipinski of Illinois, Colin Peterson of Minnesota. The bill amends the federal criminal code to make it a crime for anyone to perform or attempt to perform an abortion if the, the probable post-fertilization age of the fetus, the unborn child, is 20 weeks or more. Violators are subject to criminal penalties, including a fine up to five years in prison or both. The bill provides exceptions for an abortion if it is necessary to save the life of the pregnant woman or when the pregnancy is the result of a rape or incest. This does not include psychological or emotional conditions. The bill also says a woman who undergoes a a prohibited abortion may not be prosecuted for violating or conspiring to violate the provision of the bill. Among the Republicans speaking in support of the bill was Representative Ann Wagner of Missouri who displayed an ultrasound image of her first grandchild, a girl at 17 weeks, saying, Mr. Speaker, this child is a gift from God, a gift that we have far too often abandoned in this country. We know that after three weeks, my granddaughter had a heartbeat. After seven weeks, she began kicking her mother like any good Wagner child would. By week 12, she could suck her thumb. And at week 20, my granddaughter knew the sound of her mother's voice and could feel pain. Mr. Speaker, I stand for life from conception to natural death. And on behalf of my granddaughter, I will continue to fight for the day when abortion is not only illegal, but it is unthinkable. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated that the bill would save more than 2,000 lives each year. Each one of these lives, Representative Steve King went on to say, is so utterly precious that we're not going to stop. We're going to defend every life that we can. We're going to protect every life that we can. We're going to do the right thing uh, that we can for the babies that we can save. Again, the House passed the Uh, Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. It will uh, now go on to uh, the Senate, and the president has indicated that if it were to pass, he is prepared to sign that late-term abortion ban, which the House again passed on Tuesday evening. Well, the president is preparing to um, um, revisit the Iran nuclear deal. The time is running out. It has to be renewed at some point, but the president's national security team is looking for a way for the president to wound the worst deal ever without killing it. Now, some would suggest it needs to be put out of its misery, but the president is suggesting that you can do uh, sufficient harm to it without killing it, and that may be in our best interest. Well, 
The national security team of the administration has unanimously recommended that he decertify the Iran nuclear deal, but that he stop short of pushing Congress to reimpose sanctions on Tehran that could unravel the agreement. Well, Trump's team plans to work with Congress and European allies to apply new pressure on the Iranian regime, according to a strategy developed in an Iran policy review led by National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. The strategy assumes the nuclear deal will remain intact for now. Well, the deliberations ahead of the October 15th deadline to certify Iran's compliance with the deal, a centerpiece of President Obama's foreign policy agenda, were described by a half dozen sources inside and outside the administration who have participated in the internal debate. As a candidate, uh, candidate Trump described the agreement as catastrophic and the worst deal ever. But the strategy represents a nuanced approach to one of the most important foreign policy decisions of his early presidency. The goal is to allow the president to demonstrate contempt for the agreement and broadcast a new level of toughness toward the Iranian regime without triggering the international chaos. Several of his advisors warned would follow from a total withdrawal from the 2015 deal. Administration officials have cautioned that the strategy hasn't yet been finalized and that it could change before the president makes an official announcement. But Secretary of Defense James Mattis hinted at the approach early on Tuesday when he told a congressional panel that he believes the deal is in America's interest and that Trump should consider staying in. Appearing alongside him, Joe Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said the agreement has delayed the development of a nuclear capable Iran. Well, though their rhetoric was far from positive about the deal itself, uh, then uh, Trump's it is consistent with the White House strategy of decertifying the agreement without uh, pushing Congress to dissolve it through sanctions. And that process is uh, well underway. Thirty one minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We were talking about the president considering whether to certify the Iran nuclear deal as he is uh, engaged in deliberations, whether to certify to Congress the 2015 deal with Iran. Word that the United Nations nuclear watchdog can't verify a crucial part of the agreement could tip the scales with uh, time running out by the middle of next month. Uh, So writes uh, Ben Evansky. He points out that U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley indicated on Thursday that Russia was shielding Iran by blocking the International Atomic Energy Agency from verifying part of the deal. The IAEA initially revealed the news to a reporter in a Q&A. Meanwhile, under a requirement from Congress, Trump has to choose whether to certify the deal by the 15th. Uh, The IAEA director general told Reuters that his agency's tools are limited regarding verification of Section T in the nuclear deal. Section T of the Iran nuclear deal, which is also known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, prohibits activities related to design and development of a nuclear weapon. Um, The Russians don't believe the IAEA has the mandate for that particular section of the agreement and why they are stepping in is a good question. In response to his admission, Haley, not uh, referring to Russia by name in her statement, said that for the deal to have meaning, the parties must have a common understanding of its terms. And apparently that is not now the case. Well, the United States mission to the U.N., which uh, rather when asked for further comment on Haley's views on certification on whether the deal is uh, failing because of Iranian noncompliance, referred to Haley's latest statement and a speech she made to the American Enterprise Institute in Washington in September. 
In her speech, she was broadly interpreted as laying out the administration's case for not certifying the Iran nuclear deal. Congress requires the president to certify the Iran deal every 90 days under the terms of the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, also known as the Corker-Cardin bill that was passed in 2015, paving the way for the Iran nuclear deal, a cornerstone of the Obama administration's foreign policy legacy. So that certainly may influence the decision made on the part of the administration to certify or modify, as uh, is the case. Meanwhile, a top Iranian military official was quoted Friday in state media as saying Tehran won't be pressured by the U.S. threats to pull out of the nuclear deal and would be better off without it anyway. Well, regardless, Iran still appears to be trying to keep the deal from collapsing. And the country's foreign minister admitted as much this week, according to an interview published in the Financial Times. President Obama is facing that deadline. They're aware of the deadline and what it might mean for them moving forward. Well, Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Zaved Zarif in an interview with Financial Times says, my assumption and guess is that he will not certify and then will allow Congress to take the decision. Uh, Zarif added, if Europe and the ja- and uh, Japan and Russia and China decide to go along with the U.S., then I think uh, that will be the end of the deal. Uh, Europe should lead. Well, meantime, Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, took a more hardline stance when he spoke to the United Nations General Assembly on the 20th. Iran will not be the first country to violate the agreement, but it will respond decisively and resolutely to its violation by any party. Well, the Trump administration has certified Iran's compliance twice, but experts say it will be willing to reject it this time. A law requires that the administration notify Congress and those 90 days are drawing to a close. The National Security uh, a fellow at the Israeli-based Institute for National Security Studies, an independent think tank, uh, Emily Landau, says that even if the United Nation, the United States rather, renounces the deal, it doesn't mean that the deal necessarily ends. She notes that uh, there's still a U.N. Security Council resolution granting authority to the Iran nuclear deal, and that would likely remain in force. So even if the president chooses not to certify, it may not, may not mean uh, major changes in uh, in the relationship over that agreement for those uh, parties who are signatories. Finally, uh, the Joint Office of Homeless Services here in the Portland area is looking for reasons. There's been a spike in demand at an East Portland shelter that turns no one away. As Portland and Multnomah County grapple with a spike in homeless families seeking shelter, key data point of raising a startling question. Are these families arriving from out of state? Are they coming to Portland because Portland is ready to receive them? Well, the number of people seeking shelter at the Human Solutions Family Shelter had more than doubled in the last four months. According to Willamette Week, data collected at the East Portland Shelter on the night of September the 12th uh, show that 43% of the heads of households reported that their last permanent address wasn't in Oregon. On the 23rd of August, nearly three weeks before Uh, 49% of households who answered the relevant question while seeking shelter gave an out-of-state address. The shelter was built for 133 people and because of a policy of not turning anyone away, has relied on area churches and motels. The number of people seeking shelter there has topped 400 this month, a significant spike from the spring. Now, it may be the change in weather, but the change in address is what's most interesting to them at this point. Whether the increased demand is coming at, at uh, least in part from outside of the Portland area uh, remains an unanswered question, according to the Joint uh, Office of Homeless Services, Mark Jollin, the city county 
uh, agency in charge of shelter. It's a question we are asking, he says, looking at our data and talking to our provider to see both if there has been in the recent past a significant increase in the number of families who report that their last permanent address was somewhere other than Multnomah County, but also understand the limits of those data. Now, questions uh, official uh, want to explore, officials rather, want to explore how long families had some kind of housing in the county before coming to the shelter and the reasons they moved to Portland and nearby areas. Without understanding those things, we can't really answer the question, why are we seeing this increase and does it ha- have anything to do with the communities where the families last had resided? Well, advocates for homeless services are quick to fight off what they call the magnet myth, the idea that providing resources will only make the city's homeless population swell. In general, people People living on the county streets report having roots here. More than 70% of unsheltered homeless people reported living in the county for more than two years, according to the latest uh, data. That's in 2015. The new stats on out-of-town addresses were culled from an intake form that households fill out when entering the shelter. Families don't necessarily understand what they're being asked for, whether they should list their last formal lease or more recent informal housing arrangement. But the joint office says that it couldn't readily provide a comparable out-of-state number for last year, but did offer statistics on the number of households with in-county addresses, which suggests the out-of-towners can't possibly be the sole uh, cause of the increase. Now, I mentioned that for a number of things. It reminds us that as we enter into the fall and winter months, it becomes much more difficult for some uh, who are living on the streets of Portland who have lost their housing uh, to manage. And to let you know that on Thursday, the 19th of October, we're going to host the um, uh, Union Gospel Mission for a radiothon, and it will give you an opportunity to address Uh, those issues specifically and directly in our community. So we're looking forward to that. Again, it's on Thursday, the 19th of of this month, and uh, looking forward to addressing some of these issues here at home because it's one thing, and I appreciate the agencies that are responsible for trying to make sense of who's where and uh, why, uh, but for those of us who um, have a charge to minister to those among us who are homeless and hungry and without shelter, which is the same as homeless, um, we have an opportunity to do so in Jesus' name. Union Gospel Mission is a great way for us to address that growing problem, especially as we're entering into the fall and winter months. So that's coming up on the 19th, and I hope you'll plan uh, to be with us. Well, we're going to take a break here in uh, just a moment. Um, I want to remind you, and we'll talk a little bit about this in our next segment, that tomorrow is Bring Your Bible to School Day. You can Uh, Learn more at their website, which is bringyourbible.org. There are all kinds of resources for young people, whether they're in kindergarten or they're in high school. And some university campuses, I think, are also participating. But this is an annual Focus on the Family event, encouraging young people to exercise their uh, right to express their religious beliefs. And uh, something as innocuous as carrying a Bible to school. And in some places, there are activities that encourage fellow believers um, to come together and um, celebrate their their uh, common faith, uh, but it's it's interesting that something as simple as carrying your Bible can become uh, something of a controversy. You'll find on the website there's also information on what to do if there uh, there are controversies if you're told by a, a teacher, for example, to put that Bible away or to take it back home or whatever. Um, there's an explanation of what a child can and cannot do on that website. Again, bringyourbible.org. More on that when we come back from the break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back for the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. For those of you who occasionally watch television, perhaps you've seen the commercials about Bring Your Bible to School Day. Well, that's tomorrow. Uh, Thursday, October the 5th. It's fo- it's uh, sponsored, rather, by Focus on the Family. It's a nationwide event, and they launched this initiative as a way to empower modern-day Esthers and Daniels to be courageous in standing for their faith. We're talking about school-age children, whether that's elementary, middle school, or high school students. They point out that stats uh, have shown that fewer Americans than ever before are identifying as Christian or truly following biblical principles. And that's why Focus on the Family wanted to come alongside parents and church leaders to embolden the next generation, the chi- the kids, if you will, to take ownership of their personal faith in Christ. And they've provided resources equipping uh, parents and children to build uh, confidence in their ability to openly express their deeply held biblical faith in the public square. So what is it all about? On Bring Your Bible to School Day, this year event uh, on Thursday, October 5th, which is, of course is tomorrow, Students across the nation are going to celebrate religious freedom and share God's love with their friends. It's an annual event for students, as I mentioned, sponsored by Focus. The event's designed to empower kids as uh, students to express their beliefs in the truth of God word, God's word, rather, and to do so in a respectful way that demonstrates the love of Christ. Participation is voluntary. It's student-directed. Uh, meaning it's uh, completely up to the students, Christian clubs, and youth groups to sign up online and then lead the activities in their school. Uh, so you can um, find resources to do that if you're uh, un- if you were unaware of it and would like to be a part of this um, this event. Again, you can go to the website bringyourbible.org for more information. As I mentioned, uh, Focus points out that as a Christian student, you can be powerful, have a voice of hope at your school. Uh, in the Bible, it's often uh, young people who led the way with the rest of the culture by providing an example of spiritual boldness. And in their promotional materials, they point out that taking a courageous stand for their belief in God was something we read about quite frequently. We see this in the books of Daniel and Esther, uh, which tell the stories of a young man and a young woman who, despite their youth, had the courage to share God's truth and love with an unbelieving culture. Well, the New Testament also speaks to the difference you can make. Uh, don't let anyone look down on you because of you uh, because you are young but set an example for the believers in speech in conduct in love in faith and in purity quoting first timothy chapter 4 verse 12 also simply by bringing your bible to school and expressing your faith you're helping to protect religious freedoms for other students uh, and they offer five reasons to get involved again on their website if you'd like uh, more information about to bring your bible to school and that's coming up tomorrow, and children or young people are invited and encouraged to bring their Bibles uh, and to carry them openly. They're not uh, uh, encouraged to do anything that's not permitted uh, on uh, the school grounds. And they also offer some suggestions on what to do if uh, there is resistance within your school. And Alliance Defending Freedom has made itself available to help, um, uh, to help answer questions should there uh, be any uh, problems that arise. They are encouraging. And again, you can find all of this information on the website, bringyourbible.org. There's a parents and pastors edition and information for students, videos, a Facebook page and all of that. Uh, For example, some kids have engaged in an art display, inviting children uh, to submit their artwork, poetry, creative displays, celebrating the power and beauty of God's word. And that was made available on Bring Your Bible to Work Day. There's the Bible Repair Station, uh, a booth where people can bring their Bible 
vehicles, have them cleaned and repaired. Uh, dramatic portrayals in which people uh, act out uh, different uh, versions, uh, different segments, rather, of the scripture, a family Bible display, just different things that can be done. But tomorrow is a day when young people all across the country are going to bring their Bibles with them to school. And I would encourage you to be in prayer for these young people, as it may be in some places very challenging. Um, it requires uh, courage in some places to uh, identify openly with Christ and certainly to bring your Bible uh, may invite um, unwanted attention, uh, but uh, children are encouraged to bring their Bibles, to act respectfully, to speak um, the truth in love with their uh, co-workers and adults and so on. And uh, preparing for all of that, uh, you can find resources at the webpage, bringyourbible.org. So I would encourage you uh, to take advantage of this opportunity and remember young people in prayer throughout the day. Well, I wanted to end today's program with a song that just uh, reminds us of what our culture, what our country, what the world desperately needs, and quite simply, they need Jesus. Uh, So we're going to end the program with uh, Kirk Franklin and friends singing My World Needs You. But first, I want to mention tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Jeff Kinley. He's the author of The End of America. And by the way, there's a question mark there, Bible prophecy and a country in crisis. We'll talk with him about that. And then on Friday, we'll turn our attention to lighter things. So I hope you can join us. To close, what, what do we need most? Well, we need Jesus. And this song just reminds us that is precisely what we bring to the culture as salt and light. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.